So I was reading an, uh, an article in Plow this past week with some, had some writings by Oscar Romero in it, who was a, a Catholic priest in El Salvador, born in 1917. And here's Plow's description of him. During his three years as Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero was known as a fearless defender of the poor and suffering. His work on behalf of the oppressed earned him the admiration and love of the peasants he served and, finally, an assassin's bullet. The following is a, a poish poem he wrote for Lent. He wrote it in February of 19. 80, one month before he was assassinated. And in here he says what I was trying to say last week about Lent, but much better. People do not mortify themselves during Lent out of a sick desire to suffer. God did not make us for suffering. If we fast or do penances or pray, it is for a very positive goal. By overcoming self, one achieves the Easter resurrection. We do not just celebrate a risen Christ distinct from us, but during Lent we prepare ourselves to rise with him to a new life, to become the new persons that are what the country needs right now. Let us not just shout slogans about new structures, New structures will be worthless without new persons to administer the new structures the country needs and live them out in their lives. During Lent, we therefore, yes, prepare ourselves to rise with Christ to new life, to become those new persons our country needs right now. During Lent, that's what we're supposed to do with Jesus and with each other. And that's what Christians have done with Jesus and with each other for a long time. Which takes us in, all the way back to the catacombs, in fact. So if you received an in email a couple of weeks ago that provided some resources for Lent, you might have read the excellent article by Dr. Julie Canlis. And if you did, you would know that in the early days, to become a full-on baptized Christian meant a death warrant. So they didn't automatically and immediately baptize people who were interested in Jesus. Instead, what they did is they required people to enter a three-year-long foundations class, <laughs> like what we do with Pete. Um, but it was more like a boot camp with Pete for three years. So that they would be both prepared for their baptism, but also for the coming persecution that would come with that. You needed to be trained for that, prepared for that. <clears throat> so Julie, Julie Canlis says, during these three years, uh, they were both intense and wonderful years. She said, quote, gathering in catacombs, secret passwords, intimacy with God, growing knowledge of the scriptures. And if your life reflected a growing Christ-likeness and trust in Jesus, you would be considered ready for baptism. 
You'd fast and pray and finish preparations in the 40 days leading up to this day. And some of this, some things were so classified that you weren't taught them until the final week of those 40 days, including the Lord's Prayer and the Creed, which were never written down. They were only passed on orally. And then at last, on midnight on the Holy Saturday vigil, which we're going to be talking more and more about, rolling into Easter Sunday, you declared something very unusual. You declared your death. Because that's part, it's the first half of what baptism means, right? So we've said before, early Christian baptistries were in the shape of mausoleums, Roman burial chambers. So the idea is you're coming here to die, to be buried. Last Sunday I was talking with one of uh, a friend of Debbie who, whose friends uh, was here visiting. His name was Kirill, is Kirill. And he was telling me about this time when he, the time when he got baptized as a three-year-old in the Orthodox Church. And it was the Sunday that was supposed to happen and there they are in the church in one room. He's there with his family, but he's about to be taken by the priest into the other room where you get baptized by yourself. You're taken from your family. And so the time came and the priest comes to take him at three years old and he looks at his family and he thinks, this is the last time I'm going to see them because this priest is going to go kill me and drown me in the next room (laughs) and it's over. So it was traumatic. It was really, this is what he really thought. Now, in one way he was wrong, right? The priest did not drown him. But another way he was right. You come to these waters to first die. That's the first invitation. As Paul says, we were buried with him in baptism with Christ. Your old sinful ways, that way of eating from that wrong tree, that poisonous fruit, those ways are coming here to die. Your old self is coming to die, but not to stay dead but to rise with Christ as those new selves, your true self in Christ, where we receive a new identity in Christ as beloved children of God, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So that's why you would, um, Some of these baptismal fonts were also in the shape we've said of of octagons with eight sides to represent the eighth day when Christ rose from the dead, referencing the beginning of the new creation that we get born into. So you, you enter this mausoleum and instead of seeing a dead body on a shelf, you see a baptismal font where you come to die and rise with Christ into that eighth day new creation, kingdom of God, where you see new identities, where now you're no longer eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you're eating now from the tree of life. As we heard in Christ, that is what happens. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that we would, in him, if we believed in him, we would no longer perish. We would no longer be eating from that tree. But now in him we would have eternal life. We would be now in him eating the fruit of eternal life. 
So coming back to these, the baptism back in the catacombs, your baptism would be basically reenacting what you had been learning about for these last three years, what it means to be in Christ, to be plunged into Christ. It means you're coming to the waters to die with him and rise with him as new persons. So what does this have to do with Lent? Well, imagine what happened to the meaning of baptism when Christianity became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. As Julie Canlis says, baptism was no longer a death warrant. It was fashionable. What would once get you killed now gives you a tax break. So what do you do when you don't have to hide in the catacombs to prepare for your baptism, but also for that oncoming persecution. What do you do when, now that things are just easier? And what do you do when maybe because of that, some of a lot of the wonder has leaked out of your anticipation of Easter? To borrow a phrase from Eugene Peterson. Well, the, the church came up with something to address this. They remembered. They remembered those three intense, wonderful years of preparation for their baptism. They remembered the 40 days of fasting that led up to that special night. They remembered the meaning of their baptism, of what it meant. So they took a side and they said, let's do this and remember all this in 40 days. Let's come back to these things during these 40 days to remember the meaning of our baptism, the intensity of those years, the beauty and the wonder of those years, and get ready to receive a fresh portion of resurrection life at Easter. So that was the beginning of Lent. That's our inheritance here that we get to be the beneficiaries of and live into. A season, therefore, when all the wonder has leaked out to, to go back for us where it all started in those baptismal waters, those, that first time, those first moments when you first met Christ and it was just fresh and wonderful and everything was opened up to you. But now maybe years have gone on and that's, that's more of a memory than a reality. Lent's a time to get back to that to ask God to help us, to let us have a fresh portion of our baptism, a fresh portion of that new birth that we have in Christ. Which takes us to our gospel reading in John. A reading where we heard about this conversation between what, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee uh, a religious leader, and these Pharisees weren't big fans of Jesus, to say the least. But Nicodemus was one of the ex exceptions. He was drawn to Jesus, and he recognized that in Jesus, Jesus couldn't be doing the things he was doing and saying the things he was saying unless God was with him in some way. So he comes to Jesus, it says, at night probably to avoid being seen with Jesus in broad daylight, which would probably get him in trouble with his fellow Pharisees. 
So it was like his, this night was kind of like his mini catacomb with, with Jesus. And he comes to him to learn more about what this is Jesus is talking about, who Jesus is and what he's offering. And what the, it's interesting, the first thing Jesus says to him relates to seeing. Seeing the kingdom. Seeing that eighth day new, res, new creation reality. Jesus tells him the way to the light, in a sense, in the darkness. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see even the kingdom of God without being born from above. The Greek there can also mean born again, born a second time. And most likely, Jesus being the poet he was, intended both meanings. And so Nicodemus, he's intrigued. He wants to know more. And so he responds, how? How can someone, after growing old, do this? And it could be that he was thinking of himself. Maybe Nicodemus was getting on in years. Maybe he was more near the end of his life than the beginning of his life. And he's like, you know, how, how can this be for someone who's lost their youth? Is it possible for them to start fresh again? This thing you're talking about? Can someone enter a second time in their mother's womb and be born? And surely there's some skepticism here, but there's also, I think, a bit of hope in that question. Can? How? Jesus. And Jesus' answer is more than just a yes, right? His answer is, his response is a how. The only way, he says, to do this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter First it was seeing, now it's entering the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Water, what is that referring to? Well, it could be referring to the waters of amniotic fluid. No one can be born again, right, without first being born. It could also mean, though, the waters of baptism. And Jesus, being the poet that he was, probably meant both. And the Spirit, though, of course, means the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life in the womb, and the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the new life of the kingdom in the waters of baptism. Can the Holy Spirit do that without the waters of baptism? Of course. The Holy Spirit loves the stuff of this world. The Holy Spirit loves to give us life through waters, through bread and wine, through healing us, through oil. God made this world because he loves this stuff of this world and to bless us and give us life through this world, the things of this world. And the things he gives us in this baptism is a second birth, a new birth. There's one ancient baptistry that's actually in the shape of a womb and also a cross. You look at it, is this a cross? Is this a womb? This is both. Of course, to say that when you come into these waters, you first come to die. But you come into these waters to be born again, to get a second birth. It's powerful. Where we see new identities as beloved children of God. We're beloved. 
in our baptism before we ever go into the wilderness. That's the identity we need to come back to again and again. I've mentioned a, a, a friend of mine, JT. He works the front desk at the Victory Program at the office where the church office is. And he's got a new nickname for me, which is Pastor D. Every time I see him in the morning, he's like, Pastor D. And uh, I got to admit, I kind of like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, Terry. I also, though, learned that he's got a nickname out in the street. And his nickname that everybody calls him, that now I'm calling him, is Twice Born. Because of the new life he lives that's marked him uh, as a believer. The things he's come out of and the new life he's living. That's his nickname out there. Twice Born. That's a nickname for all of us. <laughs> and I think especially in this age that's so marked with what we could call identity dysphoria. Dysphoria is that state of profound unease and dissatisfaction. Uh, it's the semantic opposite of euphoria. Gender dysphoria is a term that we're more familiar with, and that is that unease and dissatisfaction with your biological sex that a lot of people feel, and some people feel more and more painfully than others. Identity dysphoria, as I'm using it, relates to this, but it's bigger than this. This is that unease and dissatisfaction and discomfort with who I am as a whole, down to my core, with who I am. There is a lot of that in our age. Our age is marked with that. A lot of people are uneasy, dissatisfied, even confused with who I am. And how do we respond to that? What are we usually told to do when we feel that? Well, we're usually told, hey, just reinvent yourself. Figure out what those values are that you want. Figure out that person you want to become. Make a plan and then make it happen. And hey, if you get dissatisfied with that new version of yourself, not to worry. You can just reinvent yourself again and again. How many times you need to do that? And I think this term, re reinvent yourself, it's a pretty common term. And sometimes people just need, I just need a little change in my life. But I think the bigger assumption behind this phrase is, this is actually something you can do for yourself and by yourself. And there's a long story of how we came to a point where we even thought that something like this was possible to do, which we can't get into this morning. But we can ask, what kind of foundation does that leave for the self? A pretty shaky one. If the foundation of myself and what I become is me, and my ever-changing desires and senses of myself, if the foundation of myself is dependent upon my own abilities to reinvent myself, a self that is eventually one day gonna turn to dust, dust and ashes, that's a pretty shaky 
foundation. That's a pretty shaky self. And I think that the idea of reinventing yourself can be sound and feel exhilarating like anything new can. Especially when you're young, I think. <laughs> but I think over time, what you find out is this just comes back to a new and more intense version of identity dysphoria. Because this is just also another way of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A fruit that, you know, a lot of times can taste and look good at first, but then it starts to make you feel sick because it's poisonous. Because you're trying to do what is only for God to do and give for you. If you remember from last week, this kind of knowing, knowing the knowledge of good and evil, it's a, this knowing is determining, deciding, defining for and by oneself what is good and evil. That is everything from good to evil. That is all of reality. Eating from this tree is I am now deciding and defining what is good and evil and true for all things, including now myself. As I said before, in the words of the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, this is a self that ends up being a self condemned every moment to reinvent itself. That's where it leads to. But you know what I also see, though, in this desire this, all this work that people are doing to reinvent themselves, I see here a desire for people to be born again. To be twice born. I see here an opportunity to, to ask people, hey, what if instead of doing all this to reinvent yourself, why not come to the waters to simply receive your true self as a gift from God, safe and solid in Christ, beloved children of God, eating the fruit of eternal life. What if Lent is a time when we re recognized and resisted every temptation to reinvent ourselves, and instead we just remembered and rested and relished in the identity we've already been given and received in our baptism? Then, we would rise as new, solid persons this country so needs right now. Amen.